0: Uh, Well, good morning. Welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. My name is Dustin. I'm the pastor here. And uh, last week, I was not with you. I was working on a class and had a wonderful, wonderful time. I know you're standing, but I just can't wait to tell you this. Uh, This last Sunday, I I went to a a predominantly African-American church in downtown Birmingham. And uh, I mention it because it's MLK weekend. And uh, if you've ever read uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail, anybody ever read that? And encourage you to read it tomorrow on the federal holiday. Uh, that was written in response to a guy named Reverend Shuttlesworth, who was a pastor in Birmingham, who had asked Martin Luther King to come to Birmingham. He was then subsequently arrested, and you know you know the story of the civil rights movement. All that to say, I got to worship at Shuttlesworth Church. Uh, the senior pastor there is in my Doctor of Ministry cohort, and I went and I stuck out like a sore thumb. <laughs> and I tried to come in and sit in the back because I was a visitor. Any visitors on the back row? Can I get an amen? Amen, right? You come in, you, you come early, you get your seat in the back. Uh, that was not possible for me because I was sticking out. I think it was the beard. I don't know what else it could have been. Uh, but anyway, uh, Thomas Wilder, the pastor there, my friend, had me sit up on the front row with him, and uh, you know, it was great. You know, the, the choir was rocking, the music was wonderful, and about 10 minutes into the service, he turns to me and goes, I'm going to have you give a word in a minute. And I said, what did you just say? <laughs> you want me to talk in front of them? And uh, so anyway, I gave greetings from Oregon. Uh, I tried to represent well. And uh, anyway, it was a wonderful experience. But man, is it, it, is it good to be back with y'all. And uh, it was, it's wonderful. Uh, so all that to say, I don't know why I told you that. I missed y'all. I guess that's what I'm trying to communicate. <laughs> also, read Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, letter from a Birmingham president. You'll, you'll notice he writes it to Shuttlesworth. Um, All that to say, friends, uh, we're diving into uh, the Gospel of John chapter 8. We talked a little bit about it last week with Bob Blinko. We're talking about it today, and we're going to be talking about it next Sunday. So right off the bat, just remember this, I'm not going to answer probably all of the questions that this sermon is going to bring up, but we're going to spend this Sunday and next Sunday looking at this passage. So uh, this may present some interesting questions. Feel free to email me or Pastor Richard if you ever have questions. Uh, But with that in mind, let's dive in into the reading of God's Word out of John chapter 8. It's page 1063 in that blue hardback Bible, if you've got one like this. And we're starting in verse 39 through 47. Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God If I tell the truth, then why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Friends, the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, to joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. But all of us are naked before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray as you keep that Bible open in front of you. I know this is a tough passage, but let's pray for God's Holy Spirit to be at work among us. A Holy Spirit, we pray even now that you would be giving us eyes to see Jesus, hearts that would love him, hands that would apply this, and knees that would bow down to King Jesus, even if he offends us. Lord, we love you. We are yours. May we be found in obedient church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, so uh, we're diving into John 8 through 12 right now. This is a section in John uh, where the focus is really all about seeing Jesus. So you may have noticed we changed the graphics a little bit from uh, this fall when we had, I think it was green. Now it's kind of purpley or something. Uh, The idea is just to be a visual cue that starting uh, really in January until we get up to Easter. We're going to be looking at John 8 through 12. And in these chapters, what we start to do is we start to see Jesus. He starts to reveal himself, rather, so that we understand exactly who he is. So in this section, we have all kind of astonishing things that Jesus tells us. This is the passage, you know, the section of Scripture where Jesus says things like, when Lazarus dies, Jesus will say things like, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you die, yet you shall live. I mean, he also goes on and he says things like this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then, of course, in John chapter 9, which we'll get to in a few weeks, in John chapter 9, the theme of seeing Jesus becomes even more explicit when a man who was born blind has his eyes restored and he sees Jesus. And though he was blind, yet now I see As Amazing Grace will reference that passage years later. So the whole theme, friends, is about seeing Jesus. But uh, the reason I I bring that up is because uh, the passage you and I are looking at this morning is probably the hardest passage in the entire Gospel of John. Um, In fact, Jesus will say some pretty challenging things, which you just heard. He says things like, you cannot bear to hear my word. And then he goes on and he tells these people that he's talking to, he says, you cannot hear me, not because you don't understand me, but because I tell you the truth. See, Jesus is saying, I'm telling you the truth, and because you cannot stand the truth, you cannot stand me. It's a very challenging passage, and um, (laughs) I want you to hang on till the end of the sermon and, in fact, keep coming back to understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, But there's just a couple of things, a couple of disclaimers uh, about this passage that I I do want you to be aware of. Just sort of, I I guess, two quick things I want you to be aware of. First, when Jesus is speaking these words, you know, he's not really talking at the devotional level with his 12 disciples. You know, he's not talking to uh, the Samaritan woman who knows she's a sinner in need of grace, Jesus is talking to an increasingly hostile mob of people who want to kill him. Uh, This was established even back in John chapter 5, that they are seeking to kill him. And in John chapter 7, these religious leaders are trying to arrest him so they can kill him. So when he says things like, you don't resemble God, you resemble Satan because you're lying and you're trying to murder me, and lying and murder is what Satan does. That's not what God does. Uh, We have to remember he's not talking to people who are trying to follow him and love him. He's talking to people who are intent on killing him and intent on lying about him And in fact, as John will tell us, that's exactly what they accomplish. They end up killing him. Now, the second thing you need to know about this passage before we dive in uh, is that uh, throughout time, this has been used egregiously, um, terribly by Christians to suggest that God no longer loves Jewish people. In fact, as you'll notice, there seems to be this sense where Jesus is telling the Jews that they're children of Satan, not children of God. But friends, uh, this passage is not anti-Semitic. It is not anti-Jewish people. And in fact, nothing in the New Testament is anti-Jewish people. Uh, There's just a couple of things I want to remind you of about the New Testament. First off, Jesus is himself Jewish. Jesus' mom is Jewish. Also, all 12 of the disciples are Jewish. The early church, predominantly, until about the year 200 AD, was predominantly Jewish. In Romans 11, Paul says the callings and the gift of of God to the Jews are irrevocable. Jesus, after all, is the Jewish Messiah promised in the Jewish scriptures. So this passage is not saying that all Jews are the children of Satan and only Christians are the good ones. Far from it, Uh, when it talks about the Jews right there, so if you look in your passage, it talks about the Jews right there. Uh, You can look in verse, the broader context. Look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and then he goes on and they have an argument about who are the true offspring of Abraham. Those, uh, when John talks about Jews, a lot of the time, John is not referring to all Jewish people, because after all, John is Jewish right? The author is Jewish. His Messiah is Jewish. What he means is when he talks about the Jews, he means the religious leaders of the day who are, in fact, living in Judea, in Jerusalem, who are opposing Jesus. Uh, so all, all that to say, that's just a disclaimer. If that brought up more questions uh, than answers, you can always, you know, sort of uh, come to me with uh, your questions. But just, you know, keep that in mind. Uh, what Jesus is saying in this passage is he's not saying he's against Jewish people, what he's saying is just because people are raised in religious families and in religious communities does not mean you are necessarily right with God. In fact, that seems to be the argument that Jesus is primarily making in this passage. Now look at the broader context. Jesus is saying, uh, "Look at verse." Uh, let's start in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And then uh, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say, Jesus that you're going to set anybody free? Jesus answered them, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain forever in the house, the son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. You see, Jesus is not debating whether or not uh, these people are ethnically Jewish. Obviously, he understands they're ethnically Jewish. What Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is saying is just because you are raised around the faith does not mean that you are right with God. Look at verse 39 in our passage. Jesus is saying, you need me to be free. You need me to set you free. That is what you need. And their reaction is what? No, how dare you say that I need you? They answered him in verse 39, Abraham is our father. Hey, buddy, we have a religious heritage that we can claim. We are fine. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, he says, okay, yeah, I have admit, Yeah, you're the offspring of Abraham, but who do you resemble? Who are you living like? Who are you inwardly? And so he says in verse 39, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. You see what Jesus is saying, and this is, this is why this is the hardest passage, is because Jesus is so radically challenging in this passage. He's looking at a group of religious people. In fact, a group of religiously uh, influential people people, the religious leaders. And he's saying all of your religious pride and your background and your heritage, unless it leads to faith in me, it will not lead you to the truth because I am the truth. I am the way. And if you say you love God and you don't love me, you don't know God and you don't know him because I am God. And if that's hard to accept, that's exactly what Jesus goes on to say Later, which we'll look at next week, Jesus says to them in verse 58, <laughs> he says to them, truly, 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 I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> and that's an Old Testament way of saying, I am God. Remember in Exodus, God says, I am that I am. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. They understand that it's a claim that Jesus is God, and in, in verse 58, Nine, they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. But Jesus wasn't yet appointed to die, and his hour hasn't come, so he escapes. So all that to say, this is Jesus at his most challenging, right? He's looking at religious people and saying, you can't rely only on your religious heritage and your background and your upbringing in order to be reconciled to God. Now, uh, how does that apply to you and me? Well, what I find is, you know, um, I had to fly. Anyone hate flying with me? Anybody hate flying? You know what the worst part about flying is? Being a pastor while you're flying. Because I'm not supposed to be scared, right? I'm supposed to be like, if I die, heaven's cool. Everything's going to be fine. That's my theology. But, you know, it takes a a long work of sanctification to get from your head to your heart. You know, like, I intuitively know heaven is great. But my heart is like, yeah, but, you know, there's some football this afternoon I'd kind of like to catch, right? Right? So I hate flying and the worst thing about flying is being outed as a pastor on the flight. Man, as soon as someone was like, "What do you do, young man?" and I I'm like, "Well, you know, I'm I'm in this, you know, religious startup kind of thing. It's been going on for a while. <laughs> you may have heard of it. It's a global movement you know, making all things new, and anyway, they, they find out I'm a pastor. Well, then, you know what happens when you sit next to a pastor? There, I, I find two similar things, two two common things. One, the person really wants to make sure that I know they're a sinner, so they're, like, really quick to drop the F-bomb or start cussing at me or, like, talking about their affair or something. I had all kind of weird, like, booth, and I'm like, I don't know if this is a confession of sin, but if it is, you're really bad at it, you know? It's like, why are you telling me all of this? Are you just, like, marking your territory, like... Don't come near me with all of your judgmental, judgmentalness, right? Which is an ironic thing to do to somebody, right? What a jerk, you're so judgmental, right? Anyway, that's one option. But more often than not, when someone sniffs out the pastors, you know, around me, you know, the pastor smell, you know what they do? It's like they feel this burden to list all of their righteous deeds, you know what I mean? Like, love keeps no record of wrong. Apparently, love keeps a record of right, because all they do is they say, well, you know, my grandmother, let me tell you about the Sunday school classes she taught, and let me tell you about this mission trip I went on when I was 12. You know, it's great. It was 30 years ago, but hey, man, buddy, was it awesome. And let me tell you about all this money I've given away, and, and you know, aren't those people bad, and can't you believe people vote that way? It's like this whole religious conversation where they sort of prove their righteousness to me. And, I mean, that's sweet to meet other believers, but there is also that sense of, you know, what actually makes somebody a Christian? You know, if you, if you were sort of the awkward person sitting in between me and this person on the airplane, you may, if you don't know anything about Christianity, you may get the impression that just being raised in the church makes you a Christian. Being raised around this stuff, it's sort of like osmosis. It just sort of seeps into you and you become a Christian. Well, that was exactly the mistake the people in John are making, Jesus comes along and radically says, if you want to be set free, free from sin, free from the depraved way of living, free from the dark forces at work within you and at work in our world, you need the Son of God to set you free. And if you repent and believe on him, then you will be free indeed in ways you can never imagine because I have come on a mission to defeat the forces of evil and make everything wrong be made right. Jesus did not come to turn the world upside down. He came to set the world to rights. But to do that, you have to believe in Jesus. Now, that's so, that's so hard for people to accept. It's hard for people to accept today, and it was hard for people to accept in Jesus' life. I mean, their, their immediate reaction to that, it may be your immediate reaction to Jesus claiming that he alone is going to be the Savior of the world turns the world to rights. You know, later on, they say, who do you think you are? (laughs) Who do you make yourself out to be? Are you crazy? They call him a racial slur at one point. They call him a Samaritan. And they say, you're demon-possessed, buddy. Aren't we right in saying you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? It's right there in verse 48. And they say, who do you make yourself out to be, buddy? And Jesus' response, he's not saying, well, I'm just speaking metaphorically. Take it easy. What Jesus does is he ratchets it up and he says, well, before Abraham was, I am. That's who I am. And that's why I can say this stuff. So your reaction to how Jesus is talking sort of reveals, if you will, who you think Jesus is. If Jesus really is Lord, you'll accept his word. Jesus says it right there in verse 31, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples. So if you're wondering, well, maybe you were raised in a religious family. Maybe you don't know the moment you gave your life to Christ, but you know you try to live for Him. How do you know if you're really a believer? Well, Jesus will say it's pretty simple. Look at the outcome of your life. If you are truly my disciples, you will abide in my word. Jesus may offend you. He may challenge you. He may say things you don't like. He may call things sin that you don't think are sins. He may talk about His return, which makes you uncomfortable but a disciple is someone who abides in his word. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to be found in him? Those are the marks of a true disciple. Uh, It's not someone sitting on an airplane saying, well, you know, I was raised in the church. Of course I'm a Christian. I've been raised around it. Jesus will say, to know me is to know salvation. Let me give you an example Uh, later on in the Bible, there'll be a very religious guy named Paul. And Paul, if you think you're religious or if you think your grandma was religious, buddy, she ain't hold no candles to Paul, all right? And he goes on and he says this. He says, look, First of all, I'm Jewish, right? Which means I'm an heir to the covenants and the promises, right? And the gospel goes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So Paul says, first, I'm a Jew. Secondly, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, like King Saul was. And I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. If anyone thinks they can be confident in their own righteousness, their own record, you could boast about on the airplane, if you will. I have more. (laughs) He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee. But listen to what Paul says. But whatever gain I had in my former way of life, I now count it as a loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. You see, what Paul's saying is to know God is to know Jesus, to know Christ. I wonder how many people in churches in the valley were raised in faith but have never come to know Jesus. Is that you? Jesus says to them, if you want to know God, you've got to love me. Abide in my word. So that's the first thing that Jesus is addressing, right? This, this sticky question of religious heritage. It's good, I mean, if you had good grandmas that taught you the Bible, praise God. But your grandma can't believe on your behalf. All right, so let's keep going. If, if that wasn't challenging enough... Um, The the other thing we've got to talk about in this passage is, why do these people want to kill Jesus? I mean, don't you just, I mean, he's Jesus, he's so nice, and he says all these wonderful, beautiful things about setting people free and stuff. What is it that they're so mad at Jesus about? Why are are these people literally willing to crucify him in front of his mother? What has Jesus done that is so offensive? You know, um, You know, it's been said, I think it's like Mark Twain once said, a a literary classic, you know, a classic book is a book that no one reads, but everyone has an opinion on. I feel like the Bible, for a lot of people, falls into that same category. Like, we don't want to read the Bible, but we want to have an opinion on what it says. And this is especially seen when we ask, why do people want to kill Jesus? You know, if you ask somebody on the street, why, why did people kill Jesus? You know, they'd probably say things like, well, you know, Jesus was upsetting the apple cart. Um, he, was start, he was trying to start a new religion. Or they may say, he was, you know, he was speaking truth to power, and the power just couldn't handle it. Um, you know, it's funny, like the last place most people will go is actually the Bible. <laughs> why, what, what does the Bible say they killed him for? You know, what's, what, how does the Bible depict this going on? Is it just this random opinion we come up with that probably reflects more of our time than Jesus' time? Or do we look at what the Bible says? Why do they want to kill him? What does the Bible say? Well, Jesus gives an, an astonishing, an astonishing answer for why these people want to kill him. Um, And, buddy, is it offensive offensive to them? Did you catch what the reason is for why they want to kill him? Uh, Let's look at verse... mm, Let's start in verse 41. He says, "'You're doing the works your father did.' And they said to Jesus, "'We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God.'" And when they say that little phrase, "'We were not born of sexual immorality,' Uh, Jesus is saying, right? Jesus is saying, look, you know, you say you resemble God, but you resemble some other dad. You know, you may say God is your dad and you resemble him, but you're resembling somebody else. And their response is, they say, how dare you? We were not born of sexual immorality. And throughout church history, that phrase has been understood as a swipe at the story of the virgin birth. Uh, Justin Martyr, writing the 200s, says, this is an, an insult to Jesus. They say, oh, Jesus, you're questioning who our dad is? We're not the ones born of sexual immorality like you were. Whether or not they're making that inference or not, uh, clearly they're not picking up what Jesus is saying. So Jesus goes on in verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, if you resembled God, if you obeyed him, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I didn't come of my own accord, but God sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, why can they not bear to hear his word? Why do they want to kill him? If, if you haven't been offended yet, <laughs> just, you know, just get ready. Buckle yourself up. Trigger warning. Here it comes. Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's will. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and he's the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. And then, of course, in verse 48, they respond, dude, you are so crazy. You must be demon-possessed or you must be some kind of Samaritan. How dare you? Who do you make yourself out to be? You see, what Jesus is referencing in this is a, a consistent teaching in the Bible that may be hard for you to believe, but it's, it's just it's all over Scripture. And that is the world that you and I inhabit, the world that you and I live in, is not just physical. That there is a spiritual realm, a, some type of spiritual world, also at work in our world. So the Bible will teach this in certain ways, like you're not just a body, you have a soul. What is a soul? Well, it's some sort of immaterial part of you uh, that's not just a collection of the synapses going on in your brain. And the Bible will also say that in this sort of spirit world, right, this realm that also exists within ours, that's the heavenly realm. That's where God dwells. That's why we can't see him. Um, God isn't material. He's in the spiritual realm. He's in the heavens. He's in the heavens, right? Right. But also in this spiritual world, the Bible will teach that not only is God and his heavenly host of angels at work, there's also an adversary, an evil, a personal evil, who in Hebrew literally means the adversary, and and we call him Satan, or you may call him the devil. And he is also at work trying to destroy everything good that God has created. And we see this sort of combination of the physical and the spiritual really early on in the Bible, because way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see the serpent, who we now know is Satan, and he comes and he tempts Adam and Eve. And Jesus is talking about this, because he says, Satan has been a liar from the beginning. And if you know the story of Genesis, you'll remember that God says, you can eat any tree you want, except for that one over there. Every other tree is for you, but just obey me and what satan comes along and says is he lies he says man did god really ban every tree from you god's holding out on you god is a cosmic killjoy god doesn't want you to be happy and if you if you have if you've ever thought that if you've ever thought god was out to get you or hold good back from you uh, friend you've fallen for the oldest trick in the book satan is a liar And because he lied and they fell for his lie, death entered our world. Adam and Eve died. And their sons, (laughs) Cain kills his brother. Murder enters our world. So part of understanding the world biblically is to understand there's the world we can see, but there's also a world which we cannot see. Paul will say it this way. As Christians, our, our battle is not against people. Uh, we do not hate other humans, no matter who they are. In fact, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies and to forgive them and to love our enemies because, as Ephesians says, our battle is not against people, but against what? The princes and the principalities in the spiritual realm, the demonic forces at work. In fact, uh, you know, Paul will go on and he's, he'll tell Timothy, uh, this young pastor, he'll say it this way, and this is Second Timothy chapter 2, um, he says, and the Lord's servant, that means people like you and me, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God, And then here's the important thing, our opponents, those people who oppose us, listen to what he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape. The snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, what Jesus is saying in John 8, what he's tapping into, is he's saying, There is a world which you and I do not see, and you are either of God or you are under control of the devil. Paul will say in Ephesians 2. Um, we were all by nature children of wrath, having been influenced by the prince of the power of the air, in whom we all once walked. But now we have been saved because of the great love with which he loves us. It's Ephesians chapter 2. It's what Jesus is tapping into. Um, I, know that, I know that's like, that may be hard for you to believe, but uh, th- there is sort of a fascinating uh, development in the world uh, that we're living in right now, which is as sort of organized religion has been in decline in the United States, you know, it has been dramatically in the incline. <laughs> you know, it's been going up is actually belief in the demonic, the occult, and the paranormal. Um, there's all kind of TV shows right now that all depict sort of ghosts and the demonic realm and uh, spiritual realities. And, uh, you know, if I asked people to come to a Bible study on First Peter, they probably wouldn't come. But if I said I'm going to give a talk on my exorcism that I performed a few years ago, I think I'd get some people to show up for some reason. In fact, uh, you know, The Atlantic reported just last year, the Atlantic Magazine reported, uh, you can read it, you can just go home and Google it, it's a fascinating story on the rise of exorcists in the Catholic Church. A few years ago, there were only 14 in uh, America, and now there's over 100 exorcists. Uh, they interviewed a Catholic exorcist, and he says he gets 1,700 requests per week. Um, and and uh, the, the number of people who believe in the paranormal is continuing to rise, Uh, And, you know, there's a guy, there's a professor named Christopher Bader down at Chapman University. Uh, He studies this. He's got a book called American Paranormal. Um, He claims that 52% of Americans uh, believe to have experienced some sort of paranormal experience. Um, He goes on and he says men, men men are more likely to connect with the paranormal with animals, you know, like fake creatures. But women are more likely to be drawn to new age things like uh, psychics, mediums, astrology, ghost contact. Um, you know, the majority of Americans believe in haunted places. So I guess the, what, the reason I bring that up is because what I see happening in the United States and in our culture is as people are refusing God's truth, as they're denying the truth of God's Word, it's inescapable. It's inescapable that there is something spiritual at work in our life. And so they're just grasping for straws, trying to figure out what in the world is that other thing that seems to be at work in our world. And what Jesus and the Bible teach is there is God who is at work in our world, and yet this world is attacked and oppressed by Satan and his army. And when we interact with people who are committing evil, there is a sense that they are under the power of Satan. Satan. And Jesus has come not just to save you to get into heaven. Jesus has come to free you from demonic attack and oppression. I mean, I know that's a crazy idea, but think for just a minute on Jesus's ministry. When Jesus shows up in Galilee, what does he do? He starts casting out demons. He starts saying, you're not in charge of this world. I'm the king of this world. And he's looking at these religious leaders and he's looking through spiritual eyes and he's saying, you know who really wants to kill me and who really wants to lie about me is the one who's always lied about my character, Satan. And he has deceived you. So, like I said, this, like this brings up a lot of questions, right? I know I didn't answer everything, but let me sort of uh, land the plane. Uh, what Jesus is getting at in this passage, um, and this may be offensive, is that really there are only two peoples in this world. There are people who follow Christ, who know him, who follow him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there are people who are oppressed and abused and under control of dark forces. And what Jesus says is, for you to be set free from that, you've got to run to me. You've got to run to me and realize your problems are not all physical. That there's a spiritual sickness at work in this world, and only Jesus can set you free from it. Let me just finish. You know how, how do you how do you respond to this? You know how, how do you how do you answer this? I think verse forty-seven sort of gives the answer. Um, you know. I think too often we read the Bible and our our thought process is like, do I like that or do I not like that? Does that make me feel good or does that make me kind of feel kind of weird? Um, That is not at all the right kind of way to read the Bible. Um, If you tried that with your doctor, your doctor would be like, no, that's not how medicine works, buddy. I don't care if you like what I'm saying or not like it or makes you feel good or bad. What you need to do is you need to take my advice, right? Well, the Bible works the same way. Um, The lens is not whether or not we want to believe this or whether we like it or not. The lens is, is this what the Bible teaches? And if it is, what am I supposed to do? Well, verse 47 says, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Friends, I think the answer is if you want to follow Christ, you cling to his teaching. You cling to his word and you abide in it. And, and friends, if you, if you don't know where you are with Christ or you have dabbled in something dark, uh, friends, come talk to me or Richard about it and see what Jesus can do. Uh, friends, let's pray. Uh, Father, we pray for protection over our church uh, from uh, evil forces. Uh, Lord, we don't like to think about it often, but your word uh, says it's true. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, this world is not just what we see, but there's a world which we cannot see. And Father, we pray that you would... Uh, transfer people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, Father, we pray that if we find Jesus's words offensive or hard, uh, Lord, that we would have the hearts of the disciples who say, "Uh, Jesus, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Uh, Father, may this church, may our church cling to your word and may you protect it from all evil forces. In Jesus's name we pray, amen.